Welcome everybody to another episode of the MyLens Institute podcast. Today we have two great guests, both prolific contributors to public debate. Tom Chivers is the co-author of a new book on how to read numbers, a guide to stats in the news and knowing when to trust them. And Sonia Soda is a commentator for The Observer newspaper and a maker of some really great radio programmes. Uh, we're going to talk in the main about Tom's book, but also about some of the issues it raises uh, for the media and indeed for politics more generally. Tom, can we start by asking you, why did you think this book needed writing? Uh, the decision to write it, it was started out with um, me and David grumbling to each other by Twitter DMs. Say about I, I literally cannot remember the story now, what which we were grumbling about, but it was the uh, just some, something you know, probably to use a story giving you know some number of people have died of this this year and not did not told you whether that's a bit small or a big number, you know, like just just something like that. So oh god, it always this always happens every time you, they somewhat they give you these numbers, they don't tell you whether you know they don't give you the context to make, tell, work out whether that's a big deal or not, or they give you the you know the relative risk increase or, or not the absolute risk so you don't actually know have don't have enough information to navigate the world with this information they give you and uh we were grumbling about it and said something like one of us someone ought to write a book about this and then it occurred to us both that since i'm a journalist with some basic ability to understand numbers and he's a, an economist who can understand it rather better we were probably quite well placed to do it ourselves so yeah so we pitched it if they liked the idea of it and um and I, I really hope it's sort of adding something useful to public debate. I think it's really important that people are able to understand numbers reasonably effectively, because nowadays so much of the news and so much of the stuff you have to understand in daily life revolves around numbers, and it's almost as important as being able to read, be, you know, be, play an active part in democ uh, democratic society. So I, I hope it adds a little bit to the debate. And it's become a bit of a cliche to say that perhaps during the pandemic, um, it's become even more important. Do you think that's true? It's certainly become more important. I mean, you couldn't have understood almost anything if you didn't have a basic grasp of what you know the r number was for instance or what how, how, what exponential growth meant or you know and early on the, the dis distinctions between inf infection fatality rates and case fatality rates basically a pandemic is a statistical thing Clearly, what i thought you were going to say and uh, it was the question i just decided to segue into answering anyway um, was uh, the, uh, the you know whether we have got better at it and i think that is a much harder question to answer mm -hmm. because i mean as, as a good stats nerd i would have to say i haven't seen the numbers no one's gone and d done a, you know a bunch of statistical te t tests on people's ability to understand numbers before the pandemic and during the pandemic i would say that i've been generally very impressed with how the media has been able to pivot from not knowing you know journalists aren't traditionally brilliant at numbers um lots of them mm. aren't anyway and mm. I think it's been quite heartening how the way certainly the BBC has been really stepped up to the plate on the mm. clear infographics, explaining things like um, exponential growth in quite sort of straightforward ways, explaining the difference between the numbers of tests and the actual number of cases and all these sort of things. So I think as we have needed to understand these things, we've shown ourselves able, able to do it, at least in the media, and I think in large parts of the population as well. Yeah, and certainly someone like Tim Harford, I think, has been a bit of a hero in his more mm. or less programme in, in that respect. That's somebody we've had on the podcast before. Um, Sonia, I mean, as a both a consumer of research and a communicator do you think tom has a point or or do you think i mean having had a look at the book do you think he's sometimes a little bit too critical despite what he's just said of a bunch of people who are you know just doing the best that they can you know given the multiple constraints that they're under time space audience attention span 
uh, news values. No, I certainly think he's got a point. And, you know, like Tom, I sometimes read bits and pieces by other journalists where I think, oh, God, it would be great if that number was put in context, etc. as well. So he definitely has got a point. I think there are a lot of systemic and structural issues um, surrounding journalism, though, that means that that numeracy can sometimes be a bit of an undervalued skill. So I think it's not just about sort of putting the blame on individual journalists, but um, I think it is sorting some of that stuff out. But I would also say that I think um, science can be quite complicit in this, actually, Mm. as a sort of academic discipline. And I mean, gosh, the number of science press releases that you see that really are quite misleading because they want to exaggerate findings in order Mm. to generate a brilliant story for the press. And then sometimes you get journalists who sort of then amplify those errors in their own reporting. But I would say that it's not just journalists who are the issue here. It is definitely science as an academic discipline as well. And I think it is really difficult to um, understate the value of really excellent press officers who understand science, who understand communications, who can act as a translator between original scientific research, put it in context for journalists and not overstate it because that would be the wrong thing to do. You can't understate their value in in this equation as well. And Mm. so I think we should be we should be putting some more emphasis on that. I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree. Absolutely. There's a there's a bit in uh, sort of later on in the book about p hacking and, and the sort of problems upstream of journalism and the various you know by the, by the time a study gets to a journalist, you can't expect the journalist to then go and do statistical analysis on it or you know run funnel plots or whatever and see whether it's and and if if a if a scientist has been uh, hacking their results to get spurious uh, find spurious correlations or whatever, then then you can't blame the journalist for reporting that as as fact most of the time. And that, and that is, I mean, you're talking about structural problems in journalism, which I would love to get into as well. But the structural problems in science are huge and profound in that there's this sort of need for novelty, you know, story of scientific papers that are novel and rather than scientific papers that are true are quite often the ones that get through, you know. So absolutely, science as a discipline does not get off any sort of hook here. And I think it's uh, it's really hard on journalists to navigate the bits that are true and the bits that simply aren't. And unless you've mm. spent large chunks of a career working it out You're, it's just unfair to be able to to ask journalists to know which ones are which i could put my two penneth in here as well because of course the way that universities are funded now particularly in the uk uh, there is an incentive on the part of researchers to gain impact, as it's called, for for their research, because that does have a an impact on on the funding that they get uh, later on. So there is an incentive for press officers as well as the the scientists or social scientists mm. themselves to to try and make a splash, and and that sometimes does mean, um, as as Tom you know very rightly says in the book. Um, creating uh, uh, you know, findings that are perhaps counterintuitive, perhaps surprising, uh, and perhaps novel uh, mm. in ways that actually isn't really backed up by by what they're doing. I think that's a, a really good point, Tom. You were going to say something uh, there about uh, journalists. Um, so, so you know, what are your views? You've said you said that you think they're getting better, um, but what are some of the problems? I, I completely agree with Sonia that I don't think it's a good idea to blame individual journalists on the whole. I mean, obviously there are like any industry or any group of people, there are people who are better and worse and there are people who are out, for, you know. But I think on the whole, most journalists are decent, intelligent people who want to make do good in the world. And a lot of us see journalism as a sort of public service as well as a business, I think. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact is, it is a business, right? And uh, you are trying to sell papers or attract viewers or get clicks. And the nature of that is that the, the public service incentives to do good and explain things in clear language and find out what is true are not always perfectly aligned with the incentives to attract attention 
and mm. uh, entertain and get uh, and get get clicks get and and that is that is complicated to fix i i would say possibly near impossible to fix you'll end up if a headline attracts attention then then it will sell more papers and that doesn't necessarily mean that the headline is going to be true or at least or or not misleading you know so so there so if you can find a way of, you know if you find some scientific paper that says a 33% increased risk in seizures if you father children when you're when you're old and uh, then uh, then but without then that sounds much more dramatic than if you say this is actually is a there's a four in a hundred thousand chance of it. You know, if you give the absolute risk and say it's a four in a hundred thousand mm. chance of actually having an effect, this is an example mm. I'm sort of half remembering from the book. You, you are incentivized to give that dramatic sounding ab- uh, relative risk increase and the absolute risk increase is uh, absolutely tiny and no one would care about it probably. Mm. But the, the point is, as someone who's trying to sell papers, as someone who's trying to get people to listen to your uh, radio show or watch your um, television program, there is an incentive to say the, the shocking version so that people are more likely to uh, pay attention. I don't know how you get around that. I think you, the, all you can really do is sort of in, in try and encourage norms and sort of social pressure to behave well in these situations and to, to have people, you know, nerdy people mm. around like Tim Harford, I suppose, and, you know, those of us who care about these things to say, well, actually, I've looked at that number and that's wrong and or misleading and you you should be ashamed of yourself. I, absolutely, there's incentive structures. There are, there are problems in the sort of structure of journalism which uh, need to be addressed and it's not about the individual by any stretch. Of course, Sonia, you've not always been a media worker, if I can use that phrase. I mean, you started mm-hmm. off life, I think, uh, as a as a think tanker, and then you, you work for a yeah. Miller Band. If journalists are sometimes uh, a little bit guilty, if we can use that word, and academics, of course, too. Well, what about think tanks and political parties? Both of those are in the game of trying to, to persuade journalists to push their their products. Do you think think tanks sometimes uh, play fast and loose with numbers? Well, I think there's a spectrum. And I mean, even actually the think tank world has changed quite a lot. You know, I haven't worked in think tanks for sort of getting on for uh, 10 years now. So and I think, you know, the think tank world has changed quite a lot since then. And, you know, you've got a spectrum where you've got sort of actually some think tanks or what might be termed as think tanks that are essentially academic institutes, you know, places Mm. like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, um, the Education Policy Institute. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got think tanks that are basically political campaign groups and a lot of organisations that sort of sit somewhere in between. So I think it depends very much on the type of organisation that you're talking about and where they sit on that spectrum. Mm. Certainly, I think, and I think it's true on the left, and the right, you get the sort of more political campaigning organisations that sort of call themselves a think tank. And yeah, I, I think the incentives are exactly the same as in politics and in journalism, um, actually. But then I also think you've got what some people might think of as think tanks that do, that do really robust, um, solid work. So one positive thing I would say about this, I guess, is that um, I agree with Tom that things have got better during the pandemic and that I think a lot of journalists have sort of taken... Um, more time to kind of educate themselves about numeracy, um, partly because of the pitfalls actually that are involved in reporting on the pandemic and the dangers of getting things wrong. Um, not just from an embarrassment perspective, but you might actually be putting real misinformation out there mm-hmm. at a time when accurate public health information is so critical. So I do think that's been positive. The thing that I've really come to rely on when I'm writing columns and editorials um, over the last year has been the Science Media Centre, which I think is absolutely fantastic at putting out a range of expert opinion that really sort of signals to journalists how to interpret very complex scientific data and findings sometimes and signals you to sort of responsible scientists who um, are able to kind of communicate with journalists who you can have like a good 
background conversation with to make sure that you're interpreting things correctly. So I will say that I think it's not all bad. And I think that that has actually been a brilliant, brilliant resource um, mm. over the last year for journalists. I'll just, I'll just add something to that, if I, if I may, which is that I think the Science Media Centre's strongest, like biggest public service, I've thought this for years, is to when some exciting sounding head, uh, st- study is about to come out, the Science Media Centre will often just publish the, a bunch of comments from scientists going, well, this is garbage. And the um, <laughs> and, the, and it just completely, you know, it makes it much harder to publish these yeah. uh, a, a newspaper story about shonky science if they, if they, if you are told in advance that the science is shonky. And I think that is mm-hmm. um, that's been a really useful service, not just mm-hmm. in the pandemic, but for years. I mean, is this issue of balance a problem when it comes to numbers? You know, we, we we've seen it, for example, with uh, you know climate change. You know, mm. the the argument is always, well, you have to have someone from the other side, even if you know the the scientist, as it were, is talking, you know, from a consensus of ninety eight percent. You know, you you still want that that two percent, uh, and and it ends up looking yeah. as if it's fifty fifty. Is that still yes. a problem, or have we learned yes. a little bit? No, no, I think it's still a big problem, actually, Um, particularly if you watch kind of um, broadcast programmes, have been watching them through the pandemic. Um, I mean, I think the important thing to say, first of all, is that um, scientific dissenters have always been really critical to the practice of science. So it's absolutely not the case that they should be um, silenced. But you do get different types of scientific um, dissent. And some scientific dissent is garbage. Some of it might be really good and might be, you know, the sort of Copernicus or the, you know, Galileo or the Einstein of, of their generation. And obviously, as a lay person, it's quite hard to sort through that. But it is damaging, I think, when you get in the interest of sort of, you know, particularly when broadcast channels seek to achieve balance when you get you know scientist a says one thing and scientist b says another thing when as you say scientist a might represent sort of 94 percent of the scientific consensus and um it's interesting whether you ask the question whether lessons have been learned i i actually i mean maybe i'm being too negative i'll be really interested to know what tom thinks about this but i don't feel they have i mean um in the wake of sort of climate change and the way that balance worked in that debate you know the bbc did commission this sort of independent review of its reporting on climate change and balance in respect of climate change and it was very the review is very very critical of the BBC and said it was really problematic the way that you would sort of pit one scientist against another and you would sort of give this perception that the scientific community is completely divided and there's no consensus on this whatsoever and I am afraid that I do think that that has been replicated actually in the pandemic you know there are there are a certain number of very um, prominent now uh, you know anti-lockdown sort of maybe not quite the right term but um, very strongly dissenting scientists on COVID who actually I think you know and I can even say this as a non-scientist you the science is shoddy again and I can say that sort of I've you know even with my quite basic understanding of science I can read their stuff and and understand how it doesn't make sense I think it's problematic if you're not subjecting poor quality science to really robust scrutiny on broadcast but instead using it as you would in a political debate of one side says this and one side says that and you give both sides kind of equal credibility Mm. I do think that that's really problematic on the one hand I completely I completely agree the um there, there are some examples of just I mean, it's, uh, though, though I don't want to name this, the, the usual four or five names who cropped up in the sort of uh, you know, lockdown sceptics you know, so with, with uh, some reasonable sounding credentials. But the sort of person who says, look, the fault, the, this is all false positives. The false positive rate for this t- uh, of the testing is like 8%. And then you actually look at the total positive rate, of including false and true negatives, was like 0.1% or something mm. like that. And any idiot can see that that does not make sense. I think a lot of the, a lot of the time, the 
uh, the, most of the media was quite good about ignoring them. And it was only a few bits that went, I think the Telegraph has not had a good pandemic, for instance, by giving those people a lot of a lot more attention than they needed. Mm-hmm. And various sort of uh, fringy blogs gave them a lot of attention as well. But I think broad, broadly speaking, like the BBC, The Guardian, people like that were pretty good at avoiding it. What I, what I have a certain amount of sympathy for, though, is early on in the pandemic, it was very much consensus uh, scientific opinion or elite the uh, institutional opinion mm-hmm. at least that for example masks don't work or border closures don't work and i think there was a lot of institutional opinion about um whether or not we should you know lock down or whether we should let the um the disease pass through the community whether, whether we call it this herd immunity strategy whatever but you know that 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 whole business mm-hmm. and i do think that actually there were a lot of what were then fringe voices saying no but wait we should wear you know masks might not mm-hmm. be uh, certain, but they, they there's a good chance they'll work, and it's a low cost in, a low cost intervention. Or there are people saying, uh, but you know, exactly the same thing. But we don't. We maybe maybe borders won't work. But you seem very confident about this, and it seems like a decent. You know, listening to those fringe voices would actually have been a really good idea. And knowing when to do it and when not to is a really tricky skill. I think that's completely right, Tom. And the challenge of this is, I think, in journalists themselves having enough scientific literacy to sort of spot the people who are actually doing some quite poor quality science that falls apart on scrutiny and people who are asking really difficult questions from outside the scientific consensus. And then obviously the tricky thing is that sometimes the same person will be doing both. So, you know, there is somebody who has sort of made important corrections in some aspects of the debate, but actually made some shocking misstatements in others so it's it's a very difficult issue but the only way I think journalists can get that call right is by having at least some people on staff who are scientifically literate enough to make some of those finely balanced judgments. Yeah and, and Sonia you actually did a, a really interesting Radio 4 program didn't you on I think what you call was it post-normal science? Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about uh, about that? I mean what, what do you define as post-normal science? So essentially um, post Post-normal science refers to science, the practice of science, in a time of very high uncertainty, where um, there's a lot that's sort of politically um, contentious, um, where there's a lot that's unknown. Um, so essentially, scientific you know, the practice of science in the time of a pandemic mm. where, mm. you know, you're not starting from quite a blank slate, but there's there's a lot that is unknown about COVID. And so it can create a very polarised, I suppose, scientific debate. Mm. We looked at this, this concept of post-normal science and looked at the extent to which it could be applied to the pandemic and found actually it does explain a lot of the kind of issues and the quality of uh, sort of scientific reporting. It's quite a helpful lens through which to look at the, at the scientific debate. The other thing that we really looked at in the programme, and, and, you know, again, this is something that post-normal science is quite good about, is I think we all, when we're at school, we learn about science and we learn about science as this sort of, you know, great epistemological gold standard. Like it is the truth. It just is. An apple falls from a tree. We know it's going to fall and hit the ground because of gravity. And, you know, in its purest form, that is what science is. But actually, science in um, a very uncontested space is much more challengeable and it doesn't have clear answers and it doesn't have clear, you know, lessons for what politicians should do. And actually, there is no such thing as values-free science and unbiased science. I think we can all strive for values-free science, um, and that is what scientists should be striving to do. But you only sort of get there to some extent by recognising that you bring your own prejudices and biases and values to the table, and um, you need to sort of take them into account. Science has all sorts of processes, like peer review, for example, to try and reduce the, the impacts of 
people's values and bias. But, you know, there are real questions about the extent to which they work and also the extent to which those sorts of processes work in a very fast moving context like the pandemic. So really, the programme was just a plea for people to sort of understand science, not as we learnt it at school as this black box where people just sort of work in a lab and these, you know, answers magically fall from the sky, but as a much more contested and complex space. One of the things that Sonia did in in that programme was, uh, as well as making the point that she's just made, she did reveal let's say, some evidence of naughtiness on the part of academics and and science. Uh, And you, obviously, in your book, um, do the same. You referred uh, a few minutes ago to to p-hacking. Can you give us a few examples and maybe explain what p-hacking is, but also some of the other things that that, that people get up to that they shouldn't? To explain p-hacking, I guess I have to try and explain statistical significance, which is tricky, but I'll give it my best shot. So uh, the way the way science progresses is by you know imagine you're trying to prove whether two dice you've got are loaded and you've got your your hypothesis is these dice are loaded and you roll your two dice and you come back with two sixes does that prove they're loaded obviously not because you could have just rolled two sixes by chance if anyone who's played Dungeons and Dragons has rolled several sixes that's you know how it works but if you roll the hundred sixes one after the other the odds of that happening would be fantastically small and it would still be possible to happen by just by chance now Statistical significance is, is you draw a certain arbitrary line. You say if this would ha- if this would happen only a, a less than one time in twenty on unbiased dice, then we will ha- then we will arbitrarily say this is this is now well, it's now statistically significant, and you can now go and publish my your my dice are loaded paper mm-hmm. in in Nature or Science or whatever. You know, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's you know, that's the basic idea. It's how likely are you to see this result if there is no effect whatsoever. In that analogy, what p hacking would be was you roll your dice. 40 times, you know, 40 dimes and only report the one time you get two sixes, you know? So that, 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 that would be p-hacking. If you just, or, or if you roll the dice, see what they are and say, what were the chance of getting a four and a three? Then that, that then that's hypothesizing after results are known. That is another form of p-hacking. That is what this is doing mm. is just finding ways of getting what looks like a real scientific result out of random noise. And so this happens an awful, awful, awful lot in science. It is a huge problem mm. in various mm. ways of trying to find these different things. And it is not only naughty, it completely makes... It just renders large parts of science utterly worthless, and then you know, then that that renders large parts of, of scientific writing about you know, it's journalism about science completely worthless because we are then reporting on this basically noise, noise being uh, mined for interesting looking things. The, th- the things we talk about in the book uh, is a lot of is demand for novelty is a is a big problem, which yeah. I sort of hinted at as well before, which is journals like i say they they publish your result if they if not always but they'll they'll generally publish only results that find something so if you get a statistically significant result now obviously that is the equivalent of p-hacking but further downstream if if there are 50 groups of scientists researching the are my dice loaded hypothesis and uh you know 49 of them roll no no more sixes than you'd normally expect but the 50th one rolls a large number of sixes then that it's probably a coincidence, but if the um, journal only publishes the one study saying the dice are loaded, then the scientific literature will fill, literature will fill up with studies suggesting the dice are loaded, or that you know mm. red wine cures cancer, or that mm. whatever thing you were happened to be interested in that week. So then, when someone, some, someone else goes to do a uh, let, let's look at the scientific literature and see what the reality of this situation is here, they will go to the scientific literature, find that the studies only show that the dice are loaded, or that red wine ca- causes cancer, or that you know whatever fish fingers cause flatulence. I don't know. So then. And the, the, the scientific literature becomes the sort of consensus becomes the dice are loaded, and that is false and not <laughs> and not trustworthy, and that is where you end up with the upstream problems from journalism. And then, of course, by the time it gets to the journalists, we are the ones who are 
we'll go through all these results, some of, some of which are already p-hacked or untrue, and we're already getting this sort of this skewed image of how the, how the science really lies. And we will then pick out the most interesting-looking, novel-sounding, exciting things. And, of course, by the nature of reality, the most exciting, the most novel, the most dramatic scientific findings are the ones that are least likely to be true because, you know, mm. what thing, thing happens that you already expected is not news. And this dramatic counterintuitive finding that is really exciting and goes on the head, makes a headline is is news, but is unfortunately counterintuitive things are usually counterintuitive for a reason, and uh, therefore not true. So by the time someone reads a, a story in a newspaper, it's already got through two filters of possible garbage, and it's a it's a gigantic problem. I really that that is, that is a lot of what we're talking about in the book. What does the the, the Guardian or the Observer do to to try and ensure that its journalists? <laughs> Uh, don't do this. I mean, what, what if you find, you know, a killer stat in, you know, a scientific paper or, you know, a, a paper produced, for example, by a, a think tank? What what steps do you take uh, and do you encourage other journalists to take to sort of check that out and think about it? I mean, there's a huge amount of variance, as, as Tom has already said, right across journalism in regards to that. And there's a huge amount of variation when it comes to individual journalists. If I'm writing about a scientific issue, I'll always try and make sure I have sort of background conversations with people who are more expert, who I would trust to give a balanced view. Mm. So, for example, our science editor at The Observer, Robin McKee, is Mm. um, really excellent. We have an excellent science editor at The Guardian, um, Ian Sample. We have other really good um, journalists who write write about science. So if I'm writing, you know, a column or an editorial, I usually try and make sure I speak to Robin because, um, Mm. you know, he's he's more uh, of a science expert than me. I will always draw on the science media center but the truth is in journalism that we do have systems of fact checking it's called sub editing Mm -hmm. i mean sub editors are journalists too so a lot relies on individuals to get this right in this in the broader system on an individual journalist to do their homework properly to try and take the efforts to contextualize a stat i'm the kind of person who always likes to see stats in context i mean i won't get it right all the time but i'm the kind of person who prefers to for example say one in you know 20 people this happens to rather than x million for example but that's because of the way that i read journalism myself but i think one of the issues is is that and this isn't unique to the Guardian, the Observer, this will be true right across journalism, a lot of this just relies on individuals doing it right. Mm. I would say there's probably too little systemic emphasis on numeracy and checks on numeracy right across the media industry, actually in the journalism Mm. industry. We have really good science experts at the Guardian and the Observer, and I always really trust their reporting. But, you know, for people writing on you know areas outside of their expertise, it's kind of very much comes down to the individual writing the piece and the people checking it and editing it. It's absolutely down to individuals, and that's a tricky thing. But I will say about having worked in daily newspapers a lot in the past, I'm amazed how good it is on the whole. When you get, you're trying to churn out a new thing the size of a moderate-sized novel every 24 hours, and it, and uh, how it, what, what I think people get uh, should be more surprised by how much of it is true. You know, I think I think it is really uh, really really impressive. I was sort of flabbergasted by every day when I used to work at Telegraph. The other thing I will say is a quick a quick anecdote about our, uh, a science editor I used to work with who would have the, the news desk come over and say, we want a, a we want a news story about this thing. And he'd know it was garbage. He couldn't fight back the, new, the, the news desk every single time. So he'd do, he'd do what he called writing for the spike. He'd fill it with so many caveats that it would just be, <laughs> they'd, 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 they'd go, well, That's it, really I, can't, funny. I, can't, I, can't, I can't use this. This is, this is too, like, anyway, so that, that yeah. was one tactic that people used to use. Yeah, I mean, you in, in uh, the book, towards the end of the book, Tom, and it's also actually on a, on a website if people want to go and uh, look at it for free, but obviously do buy the book as well, I should say, you, you know, because it unpacks it uh, a little bit more. You, you 
you you do a list of sort of do's and don'ts, really, don't you? A statistical style guide. There's 10, 12 in there. But I, mean, I just wondered if you could sort of pick out maybe a top top two or three. Well, the website is howtoreadnumbers.com, which is nice and easy to remember. My favorite things are things like um, put numbers into context. I mean, the you know, the, it's it's stuff like if you're saying X people die of this a year or whatever, how many would be a big number? You know, how many people die of other things a year? What is what is the correct you know what is the correct thing? I mean, like uh, what example we use is you know, if Britain dumps six million tons of sewage in the North Sea each year. That sounds bad, but you know, what's the denominator? I mean, it's worth knowing that the North Sea contains 54,000 billion tonnes of water for, you know, that, that sort of thing, right? You know, the other thing we talk about is that whether the, the study you're reporting is the study you're reporting on representative of the wider literature. I mean, I talked about um, red wine causing cancer. If you, if you go through the, the back catalogue of uh, certainly the mail, we did rather cheaply, but any, any newspaper really, there'll be one week, there'll be a story saying it's good for you, one week's bad for you. And, and what this is, is basically, there is a fact of the matter whether whether or not red, uh, alcohol is protective or damaging to you, and each new study will be because of noise, because of just it'll randomly happen to not quite get the right answer. Sometimes it'll say it's better than it is. Sometimes it'll say it's worse than it is. So you, what the sensible thing to do is ignore each new study and look at the whole body of evidence as a whole and hope that it's not p hacked like we were talking about before. If you're reporting on each new study on its own without looking back at the other ones, then it can it just looks like this week red wine is good for you. This this week it's bad for you. So we really encourage people to um, give the sort of the context. And also, as I've mentioned a few times before, the the relative versus absolute risk is really important. If you say that I don't know eating burnt toast will raise my risk of a hernia by fifty percent, that sounds really scary. But if you then say actually two people in every 10,000 will suffer a hernia in their lifetime. And if they eat burnt toast regularly, that rises to three people in every 10,000. That doesn't sound so scary. you know. So, that, so it's about put, using ways, finding ways of putting numbers in context and trying to uh, sort of let people make decisions with the numbers that are rather than just making them sound as exciting or dangerous as, they, as you can. Finally, uh, a kind of bigger social educational question, really, for both of you. Many people listening may have vaguely heard of uh, C.P. Snow, uh, a kind of post-war author who talked uh, a lot about the the two cultures in Britain, um, a sort of scientific culture and a more literary culture, if you like. Uh, and I wondered whether some of our problems with numbers go back to that in the sense that those who are recruited into journalism and indeed into politics and public life tend to come more from the, the kind of literary side, if you like, than the, the scientific side. But I also wondered whether... Actually, we have a problem in this country with maths. So, you know, uh, many people have commented that it's completely reasonable to say still, at, you know, dinner parties or whatever, you know, oh, I'm so terrible at maths. And if either of those things are the case, what do we do about that? It is easy to overstate this case. Mm. Uh, you know, you called it the C.P. Snow argument. You could also call it the Dominic Cummings argument, um, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, his big thing is like, oh, God, the massive problem in the way we run government is that we just don't have enough numerate people who are mm. comfortable sort of analysing data. I mean, look, I definitely think there is space for more numeracy in our society, without a doubt, because so much of, of this is about how you interpret data in the world around you and and I'm loath to say, oh, well, schools should do this too. But I, I do think that that is something we should think about in terms of our ed education system. But I, I do think this gets overstated all the time. Mm. Um, you know, I did politics, philosophy and economics at university. As part of that, I did um, sort of core training on statistical methods mm. on the use of a statistical program called Stata. I actually, you know, built on that with training when I was um, working in think tanks. So what is absolutely true to say is that numeracy can be a bit undervalued and it's 
always good if you're no matter what you're doing in life to be honest um being able to interpret data and understand numbers is just always going to be a useful skill and there are very Mm. few people who can sort of get away with like having no ability around that whatsoever but I also think it's really over it's easy to caricature you know journalism as just being sort of liberal lovies who like literally don't care about numbers and evidence I mean that is just that's just not true Okay, Tom, what about you, finally? Uh, it's, it is easy to overstate the problem here. I, I do think also there's the, the, on the idea that people are, people say I'm no good at numbers. I, one thing we really try and get across in the book is that I think that's because people feel they're no good at mental arithmetic, you know, and if they are, if they, if you ask someone, you know, what they, they, they feel they should be doing like the, the Rachel Riley or, or, or uh, Carol Waterman off countdown, you know, that if someone says what's 443,027 divided by 64 or something, what is that? And I, I couldn't do that. And if I was doing that, I would use my phone or, or my, my browser bar to type, to work it out, mm-hmm. you know, that's, and, and, just, and the answer, by the way, is 67.6. It's easy. It's, you know, it takes two seconds in your browser bar. It's not hard. Uh, but whereas what we're talking about in the book and what I think is actually important is just being confident enough to do little simple things like that, like put a simple sum in your browser bar, but also just to say to, to, to know the questions to ask, like, is that a big number? Where does that number come from? What more, what do I need to interpret that? What does it mean in terms of the risk or the, the difference to my life? These are less like maths questions. They're not maths questions with the right answer. They're almost philosophical questions about what's the right way of answering this question that I want to answer. You know, like, is it like the, the, the number of people who died of COVID is an example we use in the book. And should you use excess deaths? Should you use test, uh, you know, those that die within 28 days of a confirmed result? Should you use the ONS ones with um, uh, deaths, uh, COVID on the death certificate? None of those are the right answer. It depends what answer you're trying to get and what problem you're trying to solve. And statistics are not this sort of perfect window into a, you know, platonic truth. They are a, a tool for getting as close to reality and to answering questions and, th- and things. And I think if people were sort of more aware of that aspect, then less sort of, uh, you know, how good are you at know, calculating the area under the curve or whatever, that, that's that's not it. You, you just, it's about knowing, it's about, it's about addressing them as sort of ways of solving problems. Yes, it's more of a sort of philosophical situation than a, than a maths in a textbook question. Well, uh, I'd just like to say that you don't have to be a maths genius to really enjoy How to Read Numbers by Tom Chivers and David Chivers. It really is a really useful uh, how-to guide. A lot of very interesting questions unpacked in there and also a lot of actually uh, very useful killer stats in there as well and we've really enjoyed talking to you today i hope uh, everybody has enjoyed listening to this episode there are lots more episodes of the myland institute podcast you can find out more about the myland institute on our website we also have an instagram page and we are on twitter and on facebook but until the next episode thanks for listening